Dendner is the founder and CEO of Hurdle, which provides culturally intentional teletherapy to eliminate barriers that make it harder for people of color to get mental health care. Kevin recently published his first book, The Joy of the Disinherited, Essays on Oppression, Trauma, and Black Mental Health, on the Invisible Barriers to Mental Health Care. An award-winning public speaker, Kevin has over 20 years of public health experience. He is a graduate of the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville and also has a Master of Public Health from Benedictine University in Illinois. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here with you today. Here on the Pulse podcast, we have a tradition of asking our guests, what did you want to be when you grew up? That's a great question. Um, You know, the earliest dream I had was being an architect. And um, that was probably when I was really, really young. I was still playing with uh, Hot Wheels at the time. And um, I eventually grew out of that idea. And then I sort of landed in, um, you know, sort of an idea that I stayed in probably into my early adulthood. And that was a career in public service. So no one is more surprised that I'm doing the things that I'm doing today than I am because I started all the way imagining being an architect playing with Hot Wheels and building imaginary cities. What led you to pivot from your childhood dream of being an architect to going deeper into public health? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, even when I think about, you know, sort of the very young age of playing with Hot Wheels, or as my cousin and I used to call, we quote, play cars. It was really about imagining um, communities and, you know, like a quality of life um, that would come out of that. And so I think what that was probably you know, really indication of my first interest in public service. And I eventually began to see public service as the way to um, to help people improve their lives. And, you know, my pathway into public health was really accidental. It actually sort of came in this period where I was becoming very jaded with how politics work. And um, I took a, an advocacy job for the American Cancer Society. And it was there that I fell in love with public health and decided, you know, that, oh, this could be a path to improving the lives of others. I'm curious what you found to be disillusioning about politics and specifically on healthcare and how people may not have been getting the access that they ought to have been given to care that you saw in your earlier professional life. Yeah, I, you know, I don't want to be um, too political, but I think, you know, today when we turn on the news, we we see things that are a lot polarized than they absolutely have to be. You know, today I turned on the news and saw somebody at the border and um, it's more of a, you know, a show than it is about, you know, protecting, you know. So again, I don't want to become too political, but, you know, at at my core, I got into public service early on for all of the right reasons. And, you know, certainly don't want to be judgmental of the 
the motivations of others. But, you know, I found it incredibly frustrating where, you know, I could be in conversations and debates where people were questioning the very essence of my humanity or my being. And so I much rather given given a place where there's this uh, general acceptance of our humanity and some motivation around love for one another and kindness. And, and so, yeah, politics is just, you know, even when I sort of became jaded back then, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, if I were in that now, I would probably be in, in incredible distress to say it lightly. Now, you mentioned that you started off your career in public health and healthcare has really been a consistent theme in your professional background. Can you walk us through what the process was like for you to actually take a pause on your career in public health and think about founding a company like Hurdle? Yeah, I mean, the the founding of Hurdle is, you know, I don't want to say accidental, but it's more of, I think, all of us get to this place in life where we realize that our very best plans don't always work and we have to kind of concede that there may be a larger plan at work that maybe we should go along with as opposed to forcing our plan. And, you know, I had essentially started to grow what I thought would end up being my life's work. And I was working to grow a a consulting practice in which we worked on public health issues. And in growing that practice, um, I worked myself into mental exhaustion and discovered personally that finding a culturally responsive therapist was incredibly, incredibly challenging. And after my depression, you know, I realized that so many other people had had a very similar experience as mine. And, and, and you know, that's how the company was born. So I, I would, you know, I wouldn't say that there was this inflection point where, you know, I sort of eagerly embraced the idea of starting um, a mental health company, but it was more, you know, it it grew more out of like a a deep understanding of, you know, what it means to suffer from depression, how often it happens to people and how um, little resources there are for people, particularly ethnic minorities, you know, ethnic minorities have been less likely to receive care. And then when we sort of use that term collectively, we move forward in an attempt to access care, there has been a 50% possibility that the therapy will fail. And so this is a real serious problem that I think, you know, our mental health system doesn't adequately prepare, you know, our therapists to meet the the richness and the diversity of our culture. And, you know, I, for one, think that that's the problem that we're working to solve at Hurdle. I'd love to understand, too, what you saw the mental health care industry in the U.S. was like before you founded Hurdle. Specifically, what did you see were the real pain points or gaps? And I know you mentioned culturally incompetent care, but was it the problem around therapist quality or training or were there language barriers? I'm curious what you diagnosed as the actual broken issues in the system and what hurdle that came in to address? Well, you know, there are a couple of things there. You know, we often describe our company as mental health for invisible barriers, right? Mm-hmm. 
And culture is sort of the, the barrier that we tease up that's most significant, which is why we train our therapists in an evidence-based technique that helps them improve their cultural humility and cultural responsiveness. But even outside of that, there are uh, inherent deficiencies in our mental health care system. And you alluded to this, you know, we, we train our therapists to support middle-class white Americans who've experienced one single trauma. And, and we know that at face value that that's problematic. Number two, there is a lack of diversity in a profession. Less than 3%, 4% of the therapists in the country are people of color. We also know that in America, your employer is often the gatekeeper to how you access health insurance. And so, you know, whether or not the therapist is in network um, often dictates whether or not people can move forward with services. Um, therapists are restricted in what states that they can work in based on their licensure. There's not, you know, really good reciprocity across the country to allow, you know, the very best therapists to practice across multiple jurisdictions. So there are some real, you know, complicated problems that I do believe we will, in the industry, be working to overcome over the next, you know, um, I think this is probably like a at least a generation's work that we have to do to get this right. Thank you for providing that overview. It's very insightful in terms of diagnosing these invisible barriers because they're not things that are in laws or legal codes or specific economic codes, but they are real barriers and access challenges for a lot of people of color or other minorities. This is a great segue into what Hurdle's offerings are. So can you please provide an overview of Hurdle's offerings, starting from the initial offering to what Hurdle's evolving into? Because I know there's been some really exciting traction with expansion into different states for Hurdle. Yeah, I mean, at our core, we are a therapy business, culturally intentional teletherapy Again, we train our therapists in an evidence-based technique that helps them improve their cultural humility and cultural responsiveness. We also have um, a mobile app that delivers um, daily motivational messages, as well as um, meditations to people, you know, really standing in the gap of what happens in between therapeutic sessions. And finally, for corporate clients, enterprise clients, we offer um, workshops to help them bridge the gaps around um, equity and diversity issues within their organizations. We're currently operating in about six states now, and we're gold with entering another um, seven to 10 states this year. We started in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. We're now operating in Texas, California, Massachusetts. So, you know, there had over the last two years, there should have been this, what you know, practitioners call or people in this in the space call the largest increase of treatment-seeking behavior. And we've seen that treatment-seeking behavior, particularly among African-Americans and Asian-Americans. And, you know, the thesis of the company is that the current system, the way that we deliver care is inappropriate for diverse populations. And so in this way, you know, I think at our company, we have our work certainly cut out for us. 
Now, do you hire your own therapists and do the training in-house or are they contractors? What's that model like? Yeah, it's a a great question. Um, And so our model is a hybrid. We're starting to hire our therapists full time and leaning toward uh, contractors being um, supplemental forces for us, you know? And when you think about this evolution into full-time therapists with some contractor support, how do you tailor the training and make sure that the therapists you do have are consistently trained in cultural competence across the diverse range of cultures, ethnicities, languages in the U.S.? Well, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to establish is that we don't view supporting our therapists as a one-time event. You know, not only do our therapists have access to our core training, we've also built out a robust library to help them on a variety of cultural issues. And then we also offer, offer consultations for them if they have cases or they sort of feel like they need you know, some guidance on. And then we also have clinical rounds. And so the important thing is to realize that culture is not a stagnant idea, that it is a very dynamic and and active idea that is pretty nuanced. And so um, instead of thinking that you, you train a therapist in one way and they show up that way and they're going to be successful, um, I think is a, is, a, is a problematic way to think about supporting therapists. And so what we're seeing, and we believe is, is because of the way that we support our therapists, that our clients are persisting in therapy two to three times the historical national averages. So, um, you know, for when we think about what that means, particularly among minorities, who have been more likely to experience mental health problems, that they're not dropping out of care too early, that they are, you know, sort of going for the long haul and working, working, you know, to meet um, their clinical outcomes. I mean, this is very exciting um, data that I'm sharing. I'm curious then how you track clinical outcomes and what specific metrics does Hurdle look at to measure the efficacy of the care? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, number one, the, the length of stay in care is important, as I was just alluding to. And that is a good proxy for you know, whether or not people are hitting outcomes. But the second part of that is you know, we're starting to collect clinical outcome data um, on our clients. And so you know, we'll be measuring our clients over time to see, you know, and to ensure that we're actually improving their clinical outcomes. But, you know, it, it's a combination of, you know, length in care and clinical outcome data. And then I know there's also within different types of behavioral health care, certain self-reported metrics by patients or certain codes that are more standard as a practice in psychiatric medicine is that something that hurdle also uses yeah so we're we're essentially now our solution should be considered for low to moderate mental health conditions or issues but for those that are more severe cases 
isolation would not be appropriate. So in this way, we're not prescribing. Um, but, if, you know, someone was sort of seeing a psychiatrist and they were looking for a place for supplemental care, we would be ideal, but not for the more severe cases. That's really interesting. I'm wondering how you chose to focus on this degree of acuity conditions for Hurdle's initial patient population, understanding that, to your point, there are higher acuity cases that do require medication or more intense episodes of therapy. Was this an intentional choice or did this kind of happen as a result of operational implementation or personal expertise? Yeah, I mean, I think it it is sort of more the organic um, way that the business have involved and then it becomes much more intentional, right? You know, to to be in the business of e-prescribing or even um, recruiting psychiatrists is a lot different than recruiting and building a business around my, you know, master level psychologists or social workers. It's a much different business. And so I think it was organic and then it was intentional. But, you know, suffice it to say that there is this incredible need all across the board in the mental health space. And there is a a feverish rush of solutions like ours to figure out how to meet the needs in the market. And, you know, our choosing to not be there doesn't mean that there's not an explicit need there. It just means that, you know, we've chosen that, you know, our solution is best for low to moderate. And when you talk about recruiting therapists, I know one struggle that many patients of color who are seeking mental health care support is that they don't find therapists who look like them or have similar backgrounds or experiences. And because of the way that talk therapy is such a common mode of treatment in behavioral health, that does actually put up a barrier where a lot of patients may not feel comfortable sharing or may not feel like their therapist understands truly where they're coming from. Is this something you think about as you recruit therapists to make sure that they're also diverse and reflect a range of cultural backgrounds and experiences? Or do you think there's actually ways to overcome some of these implicit hurdles by potentially instigating better training or more culturally competent ways of speaking or connecting with patients? Well, I think, you know what you're, you're hitting at is really the core of why hurdles exist. And that is how therapists are, you know, today trained to support, you know, um, populations. It's, they're not trained to support with this lens of culture, which I think we could both agree is incredibly important, you know. But the other part of your question is around the diversity of the workforce and, and you know, really what it boils down to is there is an inability to connect people based on demographic information. I actually think that we do the clients and we call them in our company members, um, that we do members a disservice by leading them to believe that the only persons who can be sensitive or empathetic to their life challenges have to look like them. You know, that's where this ideal of cultural humility and cultural responsiveness becomes a superior idea, a superior idea to matching people. And I'm using that term intentionally because we don't use that language in our company. Then matching people based on their demographic information 
is is the way to go. And we, you know, while in health, not just mental health, it is true that we often see higher outcomes, better outcomes when people have these common demographic features. You know, we we know that that's not always the case. And so really what, you know, our thesis is, is that it doesn't matter, you know, what color you are, if you are trained in our core training, if you're delivering care in the way that, you know, we're trying to get our therapists to deliver care, you know, that means our therapists can support someone from any background. And I think when we think about our workforce issues and we think about, um, you know, how long it's going to take us to fix these challenges, um, you know, this is the only way for us to move forward as we rethink mental health care in America. The training part you mentioned is so critical. And as you think about scaling too, it's difficult to recruit therapists that do reflect the population because there are systemic issues around the supply chain of therapists and there's such a gap in therapists today. So I'm curious when you talk about the training at Hurdle, what does that look like exactly on the cultural competence side? So I'm imagining somebody who potentially is coming from a third world country as an immigrant and the challenges that they would have versus somebody who came from an economically disadvantaged neighborhood in the U.S., both sides coming from very different cultural practices, cultural norms, things where, for example, being upfront may actually be frowned upon, especially when you put gender dynamics into it for men, where that may be construed as weak. And so want to understand how exactly Hurdle manages to create therapists who can actually speak to the various different backgrounds and cultural nuances of the ever-increasingly you know, diversifying American population. Yeah, so I, I think you just kind of really broadcasted the, the why this is so important, you know. Um, and so I, I'd answer the question in two ways. Number one, the core of the training is about how to support and engage with someone whose bank of experiences in life are not similar to yours. That's really what we're talking about. And then number two, as I mentioned, we're building, you know, a library of other trainings that become a lot more nuanced in terms of how we support people from different population groups. And that's where we, you know, dive into some of those, you know, sort of dynamics that are very specific to um, certain populations, where they may be from or even around uh, gender or gender choice. So um, it becomes incredibly complex and you just can't view it through like this one lens. But if there is a lens that we start with, that lens is around cultural humility and cultural responsiveness. And, you know, I always, um, you know, I'll just pause and sort of say, um, you know, sort of taking a full circle back, you know, this company to me is very personal. It was born out of my own experience interacting with the mental health system. And what I know for sure is that it doesn't feel good to sit in therapy and talk about your experiences in life and the person sitting across from you looks like a deer in headlights. Or if, you know, they're sort of asking you questions that seem to be challenging your truth 
and what you're experiencing. And so, you know, I, I think if we're talking about a lens in which we have to apply desperate this idea of cultural humility and cultural responsiveness really become, I think, the more thoughtful approach about how we move forward, not only in mental health, but I think we even need this, this, this idea to move forward in overall health. We've made, I think, a mistake that it's going to take us a couple of years to walk back. And that is the mistake that we've convinced people, people in health, people in public health, and even people in corporate America, that they could somehow become competent in one's culture. You know, I, I don't think it's fair to you as an Asian American, right? For me to take a class for two hours and walk away and assume that I'm competent in your culture. I actually think that that's quite insulting. I really appreciate what you shared there about how any type of training is not going to be comprehensive enough to fully wrap around culture, which is a moving target at best. It's something that continues to evolve and everyone understands their own culture differently. And so I appreciate that Hurdle doesn't profess to be the end-all, be-all culturally competent healthcare solution in terms of the training, but rather emphasizing the path of empathy and being able to be culturally incompetent in the sense of having humility and listening. So I think a lot of the time patients don't feel comfortable sharing because they feel that their providers or practitioners won't believe them or that their credibility is going to be eroded. And so I think encouraging more of that safe space for patients to share what they have experienced and to hear their therapist reacting to that is ultimately a more sustainable path forward. Now, shifting a bit to understanding how Hurdle picked up traction from a commercialization standpoint, I'd love to understand what you decided to be Hurdle's commercialization strategy. So, for example, did you decide to pursue insurers or employers, or are you also considering hybrid models or direct-to-consumer models? Yeah, well, the first thing is... um the, the business actually started as a, a D2C model. Um, but even in that space, you know, just understanding the invisible barriers, we knew it was important to establish relationships with payers early on. So although we were, you know, working to sell directly to consumers, we knew that, as I you know, said earlier, often in America, in most cases, your employer is also your health insurer provider. So, you know, making sure people have access is also making sure that they can come and use what coverage they have. So, you know, that has always been a fundamental thing of the business is that we first want consumers to be able to make a choice that they see as a, as a trustworthy offering. And then number two, the way that you really begin to scale the business is by selling directly to payers and employers. So then it becomes a, you know, a bit more aggressive than just getting a network. But, you know, how do you work with payers to make sure that you, you know, help them meet their obligation to make sure that their members have access to, to services in a timely manner? And so in this way, we are sort of selling at the enterprise level to not only um, payers, working with payers directly, but also selling to employers. So today, the hurdle does not offer a direct-to-consumer payment scheme. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't mean to imply that we don't, 
We absolutely do. We will always keep that door open. But, you know, our focus is on selling to enterprise customers, employers, and payers. And how have you found that process of getting that traction with employers and with payers? Are they on board? What were some of the challenges you faced? And how do you see this evolving as you start to get more players and employers on board? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's an interesting time in our market right now. It's quite noisy and crowded, but it's a very complicated business, right? So, you know, I really think that we're kind of in this period where there's going to be some consolidation. There's going to be, you know, um, some sort of really cleansing in the market, if you will, because there are lots of choices out there right now. Um, But, you know, where I think we've seen for us, where we've seen the most success is with payers. And I think it is, you know, really a testament to payers having a commitment to meet the needs of their members in, in, in a way that we've never seen before. So that, that, those conversations have gone, you know, impressively well. And I think we're, what we're still, you know, in the early stages of figuring out is how we work directly with employers. We do have a couple of case examples that we're testing and trying to understand how the relationships will work. But, you know, I think, you know, this is going to be a, a year where, these businesses like ours will really sort themselves out. And by the way, we, 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 our company started in 2018. So there's lots of lessons to learn here. There are a lot of niche companies like ours who were really formed after the pandemic, after the murder of George Floyd. And, and I use those flashpoints are, if you want to say historical points intentionally, because I do think that they have, deeply influenced our understanding and willingness to embrace mental health in ways that we had not seen them before. You touched on something that we're all observing, especially in the digital healthcare space during COVID and with some of these broader trends that you mentioned around social justice movements of a lot of funding coming into the industry and a lot of smaller players popping up, as well as incumbents starting to pay more attention to whether it's acquiring or organically developing their own capabilities, especially in the area of mental health care. Given the crowded landscape, how do you think Hurdle differentiates itself from others, especially those who may also be leaning into a more culturally competent angle? Well, I mean, listen, most people in this space who, it's easy to talk the talk here, but walking the walk is much different. And what does walking the walk mean for us? The fundamental question is like, how have you changed the way that you deliver care? Because the thesis of what we're arguing is that the way that we have delivered care historically, how we have supported our therapists and trained our therapists is inappropriate for a great vast majority of of Americans. Like people are not, by the way, 50% of ethnic minorities terminate therapy prematurely. 33% 33% of the general public terminates theory, um, therapy prematurely. So like you, 50 plus 33, I mean, that's pretty significant, right? That means that more than half of the people who go after therapy 
are ending therapy prematurely because of their inability to form an alliance with their therapist, that is a huge problem in the system. And I argue, I'm not a therapist, by the way, I'm, you know, um, but I would argue that it's because of the way that we train our therapists. Now, another element to behavioral health care, mental health care specifically, is balancing access with ability to pay. And so as you think about the way that Hurdle can sustain itself commercially, how do you balance that with also providing access to individuals who may not have insurance or may not have the disposable income to pay for a solution out of pocket? Well, you know, this, this whole thing around pay is a super complicated issue, right? And I don't think we could um, solve the problem here or even draw all of the distinctions that need to be drawn for your audience to understand, you know, the complexity of it. But as I said earlier, it is an incredibly complex business. Mental health is regulated at the state level. In most cases, you know, you, you have to have an agreement with the payer by state, unless you have national agreements in place with the major payers. But then there are even some payers who all of them are part of a national association. You still need state-specific agreements. You got to be able to figure out how to process claims. And it just becomes very nuanced. Every state has its own Medicaid program. The rates differ for every state. And so if you think about that at face value, if you're thinking about the core principles of how you run a business, uh, you know, it's not easy to just load some numbers in and operate a national business. You got to consider the complexities of each state and the rates that might come along there. So I think what, you know, to answer your question, fundamentally what we have to do is think about how can we guarantee some measure of mental health access for every American who needs it? You know, that's been our fundamental um, challenge in America the last couple of years, we've talked about guaranteeing it, you know, some measure of healthcare access for people. Um, and we have passed parity laws around mental health, you know, and I just want to give incredible kudos to people like Patrick Kennedy, who has been extraordinary, showed extraordinary leadership in this space. But, you know, the truth is, and even, you know, you know, the, there was a report a couple of months ago that showed how, you know, payers are just not living up to their obligation of mental health parity. And so we have tremendous work to do here. And I think that, you know, there can be some policy support, but I also think that people in the private space like myself, that, you know, we can often see solutions come out of the private space. One pain point that you alluded to is this cross-state sanctioning that presents a legal barrier for a lot of providers, not just in mental health care, to be able to scale their offering and really bring their solutions to more people who need it across state lines. I know during COVID, there were some temporary waivers of states that loosened some of these requirements. But do you have any reflections on how you think the system could be improved, whether it's through policy or through other sorts of tactics that could allow better care to be more easily disseminated across populations who need it in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And, and I do think that we will probably see this shake out in the next couple of years. But yeah, the, the, the true answer to that is going to be some sort of national compact where states can join and we can see 
you know, reciprocity of licensures across these states. And, and you know, if you just you think about it as face value, it shouldn't be too difficult. It's about, you know, building a very sophisticated database that can track grievances, that can track renewals, et cetera, and extend those into other places. And so, you know, I'm very hopeful that we'll see that. I think the pandemic has like really brought to, you know, the highlight of how this could work. Um, and, you know, we saw some states that put temporary policies in place. And, you know, I, I hope that in our effort to be, you know, fiducial, that we don't miss the opportunity to advance, you know, people getting access to services. And when you mentioned the mental health pay parity earlier, can you clarify specifically what that is for our listeners? Yeah, what we're really talking about is, you know, payers have an obligation to make sure that when they sell a health insurance policy, that mental health is also a part of that. And, you know, too often that offering has been a superficial offering that if people tried to test it, they'd be on a waiting list for a year or so, right? Or six months to a year. And, um, and so really what mental health parity is about that we're trying to bring, you know, this, this offering on par with, um, you know, healthcare access overall. Now I want to understand what it was like for you to raise money as a founder. So we know from data that minority founders still struggle with receiving only a tiny fraction of VC funding. In fact, Black founders have only received approximately 1% of VC funding, with a majority of funding going to white male founders. What was your process like for raising money for Hurdle from investors? And can you comment on some of the biggest barriers for VCs to give better financing equity for BIPOC founders and founding teams? Yeah, you know, raising, raising capital is an extraordinary challenge for anyone. Uh, but it is true for, you know, minorities that it can become even more challenging. And, you know, that is typically because of how generational wealth is structured in this country. You know, the expectation is that you will have a circle of family and friends who can help get your company going but if you don't have a circle of friends who can write those very early checks, you can't prove your concept out. So it becomes challenging in that way. And so, you know, I think that this is um, we've seen a lot of discussions around this the last two years. You know, my advice to people who are trying to raise capital is to become incredibly disciplined about how you do it, because um, raising capital is somewhat of science, but is also an art. And, you know, if you don't put a little science to it, you will spend your time having useless conversations and, you know, you won't be able um, to move forward at all. And the art of it is learning to pick up on what people are looking for uh, so that you can advance the conversations. But, you know, I, I think this issue around you know, minorities not been highly invested in. I mean, I'm optimistic that, um, you know, we're, we're going to see some real improvements in that over the, the next couple of years. And I think the important thing to for, for founders to like really hold on is like we understand the problems that we're trying to solve. And, you know, we can be stubborn about 
the problem we're trying to solve. I think what we have to be a little bit more flexible is how we make a business work. You know, I say to our team all the time, you know, we have an incredible mission, but, you know, there will be no mission if we can't figure out the business. Like, let's like not lose sight of that. Like, we have to figure out how to move our business and make our business profitable, how to close deals, how to, you know, drive high engagement. And so I'm fully aware of, of that. And I think, you know, part of what we, we want to do is help people, you know, tell their stories better, but also answer the questions about how do investors, you know, ultimately see the return that they're looking for in their investments. How were you able to pick up on some of these insights on how to perfect the art of working with investors? I'm thinking another challenge that a lot of minorities face to your point about generational wealth is not having the contacts or the mentors built in who are already familiar with the system. So did you face that challenge at all with looking for mentorship? Well, what I would say, most of us in this space, like after you get a little bit up the road, you're quite willing to do it. You can to help other people get a little bit up the road. You, You know, I was very fortunate that you know, there were some early accelerator programs that I got into that really helped, you know, broaden my understanding of it. But then there are also, you know, lots of people who had gotten a little bit further up the road and offered me advice and, and a consultation that became, that had become incredibly, you know, even today still valuable advisors to me. But, you know, most of, most people, you know, I, I say this is somebody's listening and they're thinking about starting a company. Like all of us are incredibly busy. And so, you know, learning to communicate very sharply, learning to bend. Um, if someone's willing to give you advice, you're probably going to have to, like for me, my days are super booked, but I'm happy to give advice on Saturday mornings. And if you, t- you don't want to talk on Saturday mornings, you probably don't need my advice then because that means you have it all figured out, right? So I just, I think for people who are, you know, they have ideas and they want to start companies If they're committed to the idea. They, you know, there will be people who are willing to help you along the way and give you advice. So these, you know, inherent are, no, let's call them these systemic challenges we have as minorities. We can overcome them. You know, is it absolutely easy to overcome them? No, but there are a lot of us who are a little bit further up the road. Some of us haven't figured it out completely. But we are willing to share our notes to help the, help the, the persons behind us. And congratulations on the seed funding of $5 million. I know this happened uh, months ago, but as a result of successfully raising your seed round, what do you look for in investors? And what will you look for investors in the future? And I think, I think the important thing here is, you know, you know the, the way that people should think about investors, they should think about a marriage, right? And no one wants to enter a marriage without some preparation. And so there's a lot of, you know, what should be getting to know you and making sure that you're comfortable. And so the thing, you know, I would say about an investor is like, would you mind being stuck in the airport with that person? Because chances are you might get stuck in the airport with that person, right? Are you willing to take a Saturday morning phone call or a Sunday afternoon phone call from them? Do you like them that much, right? 
And, you know, I think at the core, if, if, you know, it's about relationship and if there's alignment in the mission, alignment in like where you want to take the business, you know, those are the most important things you look for, but you should view it as a, a long-term commitment because the moment that their capital hits your bank account, it's no longer your company. It's our company, right? And, you know, you have to treat it. You have to treat them as a partner, as an equal partner. And, you know, you, you should be willing to listen to people, um, you know, when they, they become a part of your company like that. Now, looking ahead into the general climate of U.S. healthcare and broader policy shifts, we know that the U.S. has experienced two monumental reckonings, the first in the impact of COVID on elevating the importance of mental health, as well as the disproportionate impact of COVID on communities of color. In addition to that, we've also continuously had to reconcile with the racial justice movement following the death of George Floyd and many others that continue to be killed. How have these public health and cultural shifts in the U.S. impacted hurdle in the broader healthcare and social and political climate of the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I said we're actually planning an event that will take place um, on May the 11th and we'll be releasing a paper on vicarious racism and its impact on the mental health of Black Americans. And we conducted focus groups and um, you know, ask people, you know, how do they feel about what happens to them emotionally and mentally when they see these events on the news? And, um, you know, I, for the, the very beginning of the report, um, I insisted with the authors that we do a tribute to, uh, to George Floyd. And the reason I mentioned that is to help frame you know, my response to you. I think that um, those of us who are committed to the ideas of social justice, equity and health equity, we owe a debt of gratitude, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others whose lives have been lost over the last couple of years because they've really pushed our country to a place of a more honest diagnosis the conditions we're dealing with, the circumstances that we're dealing with. And for us as a company, I think that they really helped bring to the forefront the relevance of a solution and an offering like ours. And so in this way, I feel incredibly debt indebted. And I think that we as a company have the responsibility of always trying to honor their legacies um, there was a hashtag a few years ago, say their names. You know, we will forever be saying their names and honoring their legacies because it is true that it was, it has been and still is an incredible period for us historically as a country. And I think we'll look back at it when the history books are written and there will be a world pre-pandemic, a world pre-the death of George Floyd and I am, for one, am very optimistic that what we will begin to see is data trending down and gaps closing in terms of health equity, disparities rather closing. And, you know, we start to see, you know, all Americans achieve the same type of health outcomes and quality of life, living up to the American dream. These are all 
ambitious goals for Hurdle. And it's really exciting to see Hurdle leading the charge in a lot of these domains, especially at the nexus of mental health care and culturally competent health care. Given these goals, what are your priorities for Hurdle in the near term? And how does this feed into your mid or long term strategy for Hurdle? Well, I, I think what's really important is continuing to, you know, strengthen our relationships with payers, continuing to um, increase our footprint and the number of Americans who have access to our offerings. Uh, and, you know, that's fundamental to us building out our therapist network. So, um, you know, my intention is for our company to be here to stay. I think that there's, as I've alluded to in this conversation, there's a lot of activity in the space, but you know, I see even today our company as the leading culturally intentional teletherapy provider. I believe that we have the most authentic position in this space. And I believe that, you know, the, the way that we're thinking about solving this problem is the way that we move forward as a country. Now, many of our listeners are professionals interested in healthcare space. Do you have any general learnings from your experiences as an entrepreneur and as somebody who has spent a long career in healthcare in terms of goals or learnings or general advice that you have to share? Yeah, I would just say what I'm always surprised of is what I didn't know yesterday. And um, I think if everyone can sort of keep that humility about you know, what we don't know, you know, our lack of understanding and the nuances of culture, for example. You know, I think if we keep that humility, that that is like really the first step to solving these problems.